Hey guys, welcome back to my podcast, Say. I'm your host, Jana Ali. My next guest is someone whom I'll be getting to know for the first time, much like many of you. When I started talking about the underrepresentation of Indo-Caribbeans, I was heavily aware that there were other communities in the Caribbean that were much like us in the lack of representation given. Today, I'll be diving into the history and culture of Sino-Caribbean Christopher Lee. Hi. Hi, good evening and hello to all the persons listening out there. Thanks so much for having me. No, of course, of course. Um, yeah, I've been talking about like obviously Indo-Caribbean com- the community for a long time now um, because I always felt like it needed more representation and I knew that there were other um, ethnicities in the Caribbean that needed uh, light shed on them. And I've been trying to kind of like connect with the Sino-Caribbean community for a long time now, but it's been it's been quite difficult. Um, I haven't been able to come into contact with many Sino-Caribbeans, so this is quite new for me. Well, definitely in London, that would be very specific uh, mm. because, I mean, there's a huge Caribbean community, but it's predominantly a lot of, I found a lot of more Black Caribbean than there would be Sino-Caribbean. Yeah. But, you know, the Chinese have been coming to Barbie, um, to the Caribbean for such a long time that if yeah. you look, look it up, there's actually quite a huge uh, Chinese, Jamaican, Canadian community, specifically really? Hakka. So if you go to Toronto, you'll see they have a conference every year. So if, if that's something you want to expand on later oh, on, wow. but it's quite amazing. And then I think the more and more you start searching, because a part of my whole journey when I when I got into trying to understand my roots and going back to China is I got a chance to meet so many Chinese that were born and raised overseas, but wanted to also connect back to China as well. Right. So they some of them spoke Mandarin or Cantonese and so forth, but it was all with that same intention that once we got there, we started to want to, we started to have more questions about yeah. what does this community look like? And, and what who are these other people that can relate to us in, in the same context, meaning, we're a minority group within the Caribbean, you know? I mean, look, I'm so excited to dive into it all. Um, But before we start, let's get to know you a bit. So you're from Barbados. Um, What do you work as? What do you do? Sure, of course. So uh, I technically live in Barbados and I probably would say that most of my adult life I've been here, but I'm Canadian born, grew up in Jamaica first because my dad is Chinese Jamaican mixed. And my mother is Trinidadian Chinese, but she grew up in Barbados from te- her teenage years. So a kind of a true quintessential Caribbean melting yeah. pot. And I think that's that's one of the things that I embrace the most, the fact that not just myself, but my entire family have so many different cultural components. And it's really reflective of how diverse the Caribbean is. So yeah, so I so that's my kind of ethnic and geographical balance. But then, other than that, I'm a I'm my specific area of expertise is really was in hospitality and tourism, which again always had a passion for service and for meeting different people and travel. And then I've spent the last four years in Beijing, China, where I do work in cross cultural communications in the hospitality industry. But I'm now expanding into other industries as well. Gosh, yeah, it is like a melting pot. Um, You have so many different experiences within your identity and so many different, I guess, perspectives um, to look at each moment of your identity from. And I feel like that's something the more you talk to Caribbean people, uh, the more you start to realize that. Because even, I'm I'm Sino-Caribbean and I have the Chinese roots, but even if you speak to a lot of people in Barbados who have predominantly black and white, even some of the persons that, from the outset just look predict um specifically of african descent they have 
Caucasian British roots and people would never think that or there's a growing Muslim community here in Barbados and there's also a Jewish community here and I think a lot of people when they dive further into the stories of the Caribbean they start to realize that stories like mine are not as uncommon. Yeah, no, it's true. I think definitely of recent, you've seen all these communities within the Caribbean kind of come forward. Um, I was literally just saying the other day that I felt like 2019 was the year that Indo-Caribbeans were demanding space at the table. Like there was no point of reference that started this. It was so unspoken. Um, Perhaps it's the society that we're in where identity is so prominent. But it was just so weird. It was like, if you scroll back to most Indo-Caribbean pages on Instagram, 2019 is the year that they started, including my work. Like everything, it was like we were all thinking the same thing. Do you kind of feel like the same thing was going on in your community or has it happened in the past in your community where now you kind of feel like this is our time, we need our space at the table, we need more representation? Definitely so. I think that it's something that in terms of visibility in terms of the community growing and diversifying specifically to barbados now as i said before chinese have been in the caribbean for a very long time specifically countries like jamaica trinidad panama cuba so if you go to those countries you'll see a a much more uh, deeper level of integration but when it comes to barbados uh, the chinese association has really only been a few years old and then I guess maybe because of the rise of the East and its prevalence within the global economy and global business, do people seem like they feel more comfortable to to take to um, embrace that identity even within the Caribbean context? Mm. Because I don't know. Um, I, I I feel like it might be similar in the Indo community, but we typically Asians typically try to do things very discreet. Mm. You know, we try to do things. We, we do our work. We open our businesses. We have our families. But we've never, in my opinion, never necessarily felt unless we were being pressured. We never felt the need to come out there and say, "Hey, we are this community and recognize us." We've always just tried to stay on the sidelines and be very neutral, which is probably why we've been able to be uh, so successful for so long because we haven't tried to step on anyone's toes. However, I, as you said before, in recent years, I think people feel the need to um, explore and embrace and showcase more of the different facets, whether it be a cultural identity when it comes to race, um, or it could even be a sexual identity because another area within the community that you're seeing in the Caribbean more and more is the LGBT community coming mm. out more and more and trying to say we are here, this is what we represent, and and these are the issues and situations that we face. So it's quite interesting, I think, in the last few years when it comes to that diversification and, and that, uh, that being pl- placed on the international platform. It's interesting that you mentioned that the Asian community does tend to keep their heads um, down and work. They're not very like loud about um, their visibility or struggles, but a lot of that was down to the lack of space and time given to them. They were so busy like working and building and this worked well for them like financially. But on the other hand, there was little representation in the Caribbean, which I feel led to an identity crisis for those of us who are descendants of the Caribbean diaspora to try and make sense of like where we came from and to stand proud in our Caribbeanness when no one kind of recognizes us as a part of the Caribbean can like end up being quite a struggle. It's interesting that you say that because I would definitely say when I think about our our forefathers and so forth that there was a pride and there was a confidence but again it was just shown it's that quiet confidence Mm, it's that mm. sense of we know who we are we are in our and and also by nature of 
how the migration pattern happened, it was naturally whereby the community stayed very tight knit, right? So if you yeah. find an Indian community or the Muslim community or the Chinese community, they would all stay in one area, which is very reflective of many parts of the diaspora throughout the entire world, right? Mm. So I think as a result, they kind of felt like this is our way, we're happy to be in our little bubble and so forth. But what I would say that on the other side that maybe when I read through histories, or even I remember last year I was in Singapore and I looked at the migration of Chinese going to Singapore and how they formulated the community and some of the treatment that they had. And I feel like it's similar to what we experience in the Caribbean, that even if there was discrimination, even if there was a lot of, you know, um, unfair treatment presented mm. to us, the mentality always was, okay, just find a way around it. Just mm. make it work. Just yeah. don't cause any noise. You know? And so, and so, and then even when I think from a Chinese perspective, now it's not so much so in the case in Barbados, but in Jamaica, you know, the, what they used to do is form entire cooperatives where they would help and say, okay, well, if, if one family came, then when the next family came, they said, okay, great, we're going to form this community. And then as it continued to grow, grow, it would be a means of trying to help financially get them started. So they would pool money together and say, hey, okay, we're going to help you open up your first building. And so it would be like a loan, but they would just pay it back. So I think one of the really interesting things when I think of Chinese in the Caribbean is how they were able to pull together to also help each other be financially successful as yeah. well as successful in business through these different loans. And then I don't know, again, how many people or listeners know about the Jamaican side, but the Jamaican Chinese community were really responsible for helping in the whole bartering system and credit system, because right. what they would do, so once indentured labor laborers uh, came and then they got, they had the opportunity to be free and open up their own shops and so forth, they would be responsible for bringing a lot of the major goods and starting up small shops in the rural areas of Jamaica. And right. so when they did that, then it meant that anyone that worked on the plantation didn't have to go into town. They would they can buy right in that rural area. But of course, money only came every period, every certain amount of weeks or so forth. So I remember even days that my mom, because my mom grew up in that, even in Barbados, where they would say, OK, Mrs. Jones, she took one pound of butter or five uh, or two pounds of flour and they would write it in little books. And so the other day I was looking through different uh, documents of my family and one of the things we found in my grandmother's old like little tin box were little notes of what people owed and, and what they had borrowed and how to put it back and I just think to myself wow how how great and how was that so important in terms of helping people get what they needed for the time and building up these types of infrastructures in the Caribbean. That's crazy that's so new to me um, so for those who are listening, let's go back a bit. So Sina Caribbeans are a community in the Caribbean whose ancestors originate from China. As far as I know, 14,000 Chinese laborers were brought to the Caribbean around 1853 to 1879 to carry out the same tasks as Indo-Caribbean workers. So tell me a bit about your ancestry. Is this true to your ancestry? Does yours differ in any way? It's different because um, my so we came in a little bit a bit little bit later where my grandfather first went to Guyana in search of okay. opportunities and so forth. And then my grandmother, no, my great grandmother actually was 
um, maybe her parents, but I don't know as far as back as that, where she was born in Trinidad, but then they reached a point where she was, um, you see a lot of tr uh, a lot of patterns where some Chinese, even if they were born in, in the Caribbean, my, grand, my grandmother and great grandmother went back to China. And so okay. my grandmother was only a few years old. So there's a lot of reverse culture shock and a lot of relearning and trying to understand how they pass that on. But yes, yeah, so my father, my grandfather's side came through Guyana, then went to Trinidad. And my grandmother's side was my grandmother was born in Trinidad and then she went back to China. And then they and then they there was a lot of um I think they met in Trinidad. That's where okay. they met to get married because my grandparents both came from different villages. Right. But most Chinese that are in the Caribbean, um, similar to my family, came from Guangdong province or Fujian province, which is the southern part of China. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I was actually talking about this the other day with my dad um, about how loads of people from the diaspora, they always say that they're going to return home. Um, they always make plans to return home. Even in my ancestry, I'm sure that the plan was to go back to India. And I know that when they came to London, the plan was to always go back to Guyana. Um, but more often than not, that never actually comes to fruition. They always end up staying in the places that they came to for whatever reason. And you see that in loads of different communities, even in London. Um, they always tell their children we're going to go home so their children feel that place is their home even though they may not have ever been there and it's quite rare that they actually go back so your experience of your grandmother um going to china or going back to china is a quite a rare experience in itself is you're 100 percent correct i think a lot of reasons why they don't go back is because of time money mm. um sometimes uh, things just get lost and, and you lose contact. My family, fortunately, was one of those that continuously sent back pictures and letters and so forth. But what happened was the reason my grandmother and great grandmother went back is my grandfather, um, my great grandfather, he actually was, uh, he was killed. And so they, it was just my great grandmother and grandmother. And so there's there's some unknown facts in between there, but basically the company that he had owned, they they ended up paying their passage and sending them back to, to China. Well, they actually sent them back to Hong Kong and they were mm -hmm. between Hong Kong and China. So my grandmother then went to the convent in Hong Kong for a number of years. So that's kind of why they ended up going back because the company sent them back. And that's when she lived there for a little while, but it was hard because again, they didn't speak the language you yeah. know uh, it was just very odd and weird for them but at the end of the day I think that helped to inform a bit of what we consider our current identity with my my existing family especially my my aunts my uncles my mom is probably the one that feels the strongest being the mm -hmm. eldest child and so she was really set on taking the family back and in 2016 we took it was about 25 of us and we went back to our family village to reconnect and I think ever since then we've just built that relationship and gotten stronger and stronger but had we not done that and then furthermore had I not gone back to Beijing it's very possible that our concept of identity would have been more Caribbean Chinese as opposed yeah. to Chinese Caribbean. I like how you um, notice how the word interchanges because language is so powerful when it comes to identity. And that's what I feel like has allowed a lot of young Indo-Caribbeans to stand strong in their identity. 
um, a lot of us that are kind of like descendants from the Caribbean diaspora that struggle a lot with our identity because we come from these smaller communities don't often get the chance to go back to India um, and to explore our heritage because it's really unknown to us. A lot of the my ancestors from India, I don't know their names. I don't know where they came from. So for you to be able to do that is an insane privilege and must do so much for your identity. It is, it's not easy, you know, as because identity is fluid and it's mm. evolving. And mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, I... Uh, I've had many shifts in my identity. So being in Jamaica, and because like I said, Chinese have been in Jamaica for a long time, I never saw myself as Chinese Jamaican. I just said saw it as myself as Jamaican. So that was my initial identity. So, uh, and, and I find that very similar to a lot of my friends of different nation, um, ethnicities as well. But then when we moved to Barbados, they, there was many times that I was asked, okay, are you, are you, because I didn't feel like I was a part of either. You know, so that was the first time I was made to feel really as other. And so then coming and then going to back to China itself, I thought, okay, well, I I think, you know, I, ha- I have a pretty decent understanding of my traditions. I know mm-hmm. a bit of where my, my ancestors came from. I went to the village in 2016. So in 2018, I was in, um, oh, sorry, it was 2015. I was in China uh, just for vacation. 2016, I went to live there. And I thought, okay, I got this. And then I was, then because I didn't speak Mandarin, there was another shift because a lot of people would then say, oh, you're, so they use a specific term in Chinese sometimes, which refers to a Chinese person who is on the outside looks Chinese, but they're not on the inside necessarily. Okay. And they call xiangjiao, which is like a banana, which is yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Okay. And, and so that was something I was confronted with where, not that they were, I don't want to, to, to assume and just say it was outright being that you're not one of us, but it definitely mm. made me feel like, feel I, okay, my roots are ancestry is Chinese, but I really didn't identify or have necessarily the different, the, share the same philosophy as mm. maybe someone that would have grown up in mainland China. Right. There's so many commonalities. Um, growing up, my area was kind of like heavily South Asian populated. Uh, a lot of my friends growing up were Indian. And although I was Indo-Caribbean, um, I never felt like I was a part of their community. I always felt like I was on the outside kind of looking in. Um, so would you say that Sino-Caribbeans are even more unknown to those outside of the Caribbean than say other smaller communities like Indo-Caribbeans, maybe even the Syrian population? Oh, you mean outside of the Caribbean? Yeah. I think, yes, I think, yeah, I think that Sino-Caribbean is a very specific one, but I I probably, I mean, I don't, I have a couple of Indo-Caribbean friends and a lot Uh of them do stem from Guyana, but I I do feel like there are a lot of similarly shared experiences and shared um, perceptions of representation. But I think that, uh, for sure, given, again, like I said in the beginning of the talk, that China is coming more of a right, um, is increasing and vis- invisibility and more, and because they're doing so much to try and reconnect um, with the diaspora, that Chinese Caribbeans and Chinese overall, uh, people of Chinese descent are feeling more to come to the forefront. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess it just depends on where you are. Right. And how does this make you feel, I guess, to try and present your identity to people who are completely unknowing to it? I, well, I think once you live in, fortunately for me, I had 
one layer to deal with, which is because I'm I'm Chinese, Chinese, I'm Caribbean, so I grew up in the Caribbean, but then uh, of Chinese descent. Whereas someone like yourself has, you're you have you're Indian and Caribbean, but then you live in the UK, so you probably yeah. have more layers of that. Where I think for me, definitely was enough. There were more opportunities in my uh, initial formative years to access. Um, information about my history, my Chinese history, as well as the Caribbean history. And, and I'm really grateful for that because mm. I, when I speak to a lot of my friends that are, they really talk about those of us in the English speaking Caribbean. So I remember one particular situation where my uncle, my grandfather, so his, in Chinese, the last name goes first. So his last name was Cho and first name is Fuklan. But when he came to the Caribbean, he said, oh, this is my name. And so now my my mother, my uncles and them all have his full name attached as their <laughs> as the last name. So yeah, there's definitely some things that get lost in translation, but I mm. think it, it, we're one of the privileges, and I say privilege, is that within the Indo-Caribbean and Sino-Caribbean that even though there are things that get lost in translation, we definitely have some access to books and documentation. I don't think there's enough of it, which is why platforms such as this and discussions are really great, because mm. then we start to realize certain connections that we have. Yeah. But when you compare it to maybe such some of the persons like of Caribbean, who are in the Caribbean, but of African descent, or even who are in the like in the UK, for example, but who are Afro-Caribbean, they really have um, some difficult connection, um, difficult, um, they don't have as many opportunities to connect back with a specific village. So where, right. where, for example, I was able to go back to my grandfather's village or grandmother's village. I see that as a profound privilege now because I mm. recognize that there's some people that don't even know what tribe or village that it, they, they are from. Yeah, I mean, like that's definitely a privilege, but it must give you amazing context. I'm always wanting to know where my ancestors came from, um, what their surroundings were like, what was their experience, because I know that I'm a direct result of everything that they went through. So for you, that must be amazing. So many laborers were tricked and abused. Um, this was kind of like a strong narrative that descendants carry with them. Um, this is an Indo-Caribbean community, of course. Um, so I'm kind of curious, does this exist within your community? I would probably say not so much in Barbados, but definitely in the, in the wider Caribbean context. I mean, okay. it, there, there's, there was a lot of um, misunderstanding and miscommunication whereby, of course, you come, come to a new place and you're coming to seek certain opportunities, but then you arrive here, you're so far from home, there's a different language barrier. And yeah. so something that's shared between our two communities is that Yes, definitely what the expectation that we went going in was not was, did not match what the reality of the situation was. But I, 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 the only thing I can look at that and just say is that despite the abuse, despite the discrimination, mm -hmm. that both the Indo-Caribbean community and Sino-Caribbean community really have found a way to just strive and find support within their own mm -hmm. community and their own groups to then build positions of prosperity. Now, then the next layer of that, and you'll see this in cases, histor historical cases like in Trinidad, where you have things as the anti-Chinese riots, is that that same prosperity and success was something that was turned against us um, because there were periods where we were told, okay, you're taking over, okay, you're too mm. prosperous, and that you're taking all the opportunities from 
the wider, maybe Black Caribbean community. Mm -hmm. So you definitely have documentation showing whereby we were pushed out uh, and then forced the fleet to go to other areas because of that heightened level of discrimination. And then that's why you see a huge migration, probably similar to your, uh, your family, where a lot of Indo-Caribbean or Sino-Caribbean then fled to the UK and fled to the US and fled to Canada, or they wanted their children to have those type of opportunities because they felt like the Caribbean maybe was a little smaller, not fully 100% accepting all the time of that particular part of them. I feel like both communities are so incredibly resilient. The way that they've gone through their experiences and come out the other side, um, you're definitely right in a sense of coming to the UK and the US and Canada was a continuation of that resilience by wanting to better themselves and educate themselves to almost earn this like position in society for them and their families. Um, but what was shocking was how the story of indentureship was kind of presented to me. It was like, it was presented in a non-traumatic, extremely positive view, um, not in the way that it actually happened. And this kind of made me realize how much our communities don't talk about trauma. Well, we also, I think, I think a big part of that, in my opinion, is really attributed to the fact that people, when they think of the Caribbean, uh, and and the concept of it being predominantly maybe persons of African descent that the plight of the persons of African descent were so um, so severe that mm. it it kind of that was the main focus. So whenever you hear people talk about slave, obviously you have slavery. So they people don't really they they know the word indentured servant, but they think no no no. But slavery was way worse, and that's where the focus needs to be, and that is where. They, but again, because of the way that we were and we kind of just inserted ourselves and 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 kept quiet that story maybe is not told as often but mm. having said that there's a lot if you look at particularly like trinidad when you have people like vs naipaul and so forth they definitely in a lot of so this is a really big um he's a really famous writer you definitely can see some of the nuances and cultural uh references of how they were able, um, Indo-Caribbean more so for VS Nightfall, how they were able to just kind of like push through that and make it work. And, and, and I think that it's fair to say that both narratives are should be told. And I think that when I think about going back to our initial question about identity, that the Caribbean, everybody's story really has some really interesting points in terms of our struggles and how we've really faced through adversity. And that not only resonates for people that came to the Caribbean, because again, like you said, there's multiple levels of migration, but even that second wave whereby your grandparents or your parents would have then moved from the Caribbean to go and search for a migrate again to mm. somewhere else like the UK. That's a whole nother context of being in a place that's predominantly white and then being told and being being told that you're also not good enough. But and then there's and the, I think the difference, though, between maybe and this is just from what I've heard from different groups is how the Indo-Caribbean or just the Indian uh, diaspora and the Sino-Caribbean or just this, um, the Chinese diaspora, they kind of just try to. They just tried to help and support each other. And I think that's something that maybe um, came from their cultures when you think of Asian cultures and how mm. communal and supportive it is. 
which is something that you don't always necessarily see in the in the diaspora communities that are from the African diaspora communities, whether it be in other places like the UK or in the Caribbean. And that's something that I, you know, it's, it, it's again, maybe it's a, a big part of it was through this different, the diff, that's where people look at the difference now, whereby there's the systemic uh, amount of racism and slavery and so forth. And then that's why they sometimes maybe downplay the indentured servitude, um, servants. And they say, oh, well, you were offered at least some level yeah. of freedom or you were offered level of land but you know at the end of the day it's neither one was 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 good or but at the end you know we have to just kind of look at it and say okay oh this is the story this is our narrative and then how how can we move forward with this how can we know and understand our history and where we've come from and just build on that yeah it's it's so true and like when i talk about the trauma that took place i always feel like this kind of responsibility to continue building just like they did it's like it's almost like it's so ingrained and I see the trauma that they went through and it's like I have to continue it I feel responsible in myself to my heritage to my ancestors to continue um, doing as they did so tell me what parts of your culture are specifically tied to your heritage um, that of being from China so for example uh, when I look at uh, Caribbean cuisine, I can see the parts that were taken from Indian culture and the Indo-Caribbeans that came to the Caribbean. So, so what in there is is specifically tied to your culture? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of the, the the main things that seem to have been sustained in any sort of diaspora, in both Indo-Caribbean, Sino-Caribbean, the African, the larger African community as well, is food. A lot of our foods and, and, and different ways that we prepare food are spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe a less so for Chinese, because I feel like the Indo-Caribbean, they, a lot of people still kind of maintain some of their the Hinduism and and is and Islam to a point. But with Chinese, because we China really wasn't there. I mean, Buddhism is the was the main thing. But it, when even when I went back to China, I realized that the general mentalities they were they were way more open and accepting. So even though you, someone might say, "Yeah, I'm Buddhist," but they kind of say, "Okay, but well, you're Christian," and so they're very open in that regard. So when I when I see the more specific play to uh, things that are represented in current day in the Caribbean of the Chinese heritage. It's the, the, the different Southern Chinese cuisine, some of the different narratives of the, the stories, the, the, the focus on work ethic and, and, uh, and the mentality that you need to get. But you see, I think when I think about people in our generation, like millennials, generation Y and down, that's where I think some of those same values are are a bit. It's difficult to connect because our forefathers probably came into that into that mindset, and and I think I even still hear it with my mom, where she's like, "You you young people are too sensitive. Like, why do you let these things bother you?" And we've gone through worse. Like it doesn't, you know. And here you are talking about no, you know, I need to talk about how I feel and. You know, this is discrimination. And and when I think, even my mom who, you know, she, you know, in their mind, they're like, you don't have, like, you. this is nothing compared to what we went through or your grandparents went through. So you need to get over it. And so that's where sometimes there's a disconnect. So yeah. they definitely keep trying to, because they grew up with that. Their grandparents, like my mother, she, she grew up in the situation from very young. And I feel like this is very similar in the Indo-Caribbean community. 
uh, whereby it's like, okay, of course you work from very young and you go to school. That's just the norm. You want to help out at your, your family's shop or your family's restaurant. That's given. But try to do that now with a lot of millennials going down and younger generation. And I think that a lot of our parents and, and, and those that are older don't understand that concept. Yeah. And so you see some of these traditions or or concepts being challenged a lot of times. Even, mm. even for women, you know, it's so common for especially I would say in the Indo-Caribbean community, less so in the Sino-Caribbean where women are expected to say, hey, what's going on? You're a certain age, you need to get married, you need to have yep. your kids, yep. like, make it happen. This is not a, the, the whole concept of uh, professional development and that being your only goal, like God forbid, there's no way that that should be accepted. You, This is what we do. And then when you dig into that a little deeper, this is where we share this common common ground whereby there's such an intense need for um, in, in these cultures to continue the family line and to continue the family name. And then also one thing that I recognized was really interesting when I went to China is how important uh, the parents saw it as your children will take care of you when you get older. Mm. So you need to have children. They're there to help take care of you. So if you don't have children, then you're really setting yourself up because yeah. in their mind, they're like, who's going to take care of you? Yeah. You know? So there are a lot of these traditions, concepts, and things that I think that that generation still try to impress upon us now. Yeah. In 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 the today's world, but that that's changing, you know. Yeah, and I remember talking to Vinay, the host of the Cut Last podcast, um, and he said something that really resonated with me. He said something along the lines of, "Women almost hold the suitcase of culture." They are always the ones who tend to carry most of the cultural traditions um, because, like you said, it's always passed down through like food or instilling work ethic into the kids. Um, and this, these are often made by the women. Like traditionally, food is made by the women in the household. Um, women raise the children. Um, so they kind of always have this burden or privilege, depending on how you want to view it, um, of passing down culture. I think that's why it's so great to have these platforms then because sometimes they do it just by nature because their grandmother or great grandmother passed it down to them woman by woman or family by family. But mm. then I think sometimes, like you said, just the same way that when our families migrated and there were certain things that got lost in, lost in translation because of the travel, um, I think when when we don't document things, sometimes we forget we forget why mm. or we forget what the lesson was behind that and so i think it's so important to document but i'm um, it's really impressive and I, I and i probably i i laugh to a lot of people because i say to myself i don't necessarily identify I, I call myself technically a feminist although my friends say no chris you really do I really value and 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 see women as such a, a an essential and important part of any culture any community and how they've really had to just like hold the hold the home together they're just like mm, the yeah heart. it's incredible when i look back at my ancestors not to say that the men in my family didn't sacrifice a lot or contribute but i'm always amazed at the women that not only had to build a traditional home but on top of that work because a one income home was just not enough at that time. Um, or even further back with women traveling alone to Guyana from India to build a better future. For that time, a woman traveling across the world alone to work was extremely impressive. Um, and all this to enrich their their future family's experience. It was, it was 
always astonish me to see what women go through um, during this cultural process. No, so I was gonna I was gonna ask you then. So how do you feel then when? And I don't know if this is your experience, but I know it's very common in in these two communities where our mothers or our grandmothers look at girls and say, no, like you need to know how to cook. You need to know how to, um, you need to have kids. You need to know how to take care of things in the home. And we understand where that stems from, because I think that's Mm. almost like a core component of just like maintaining and seeing things through. And if that isn't done, so how do you feel like when your, your mother or your grandmother impressed that upon you? Because I feel like the younger generation for sure of women, feel like I can do both but sometimes maybe I don't want a family or maybe I want to have a family on my own because I'm just not finding the right partner yeah 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 no I kind of my approach to it is always like well if I have to learn how to cook then my partner has to learn how to cook too because there's going to be times where I'm just not going to be there and I would hope that you would be able to feed yourself um so for me it's kind of like really equal but I think I was like a bit lucky in a sense where I've always wanted a family like for me I've always wanted children and to get married so there there wasn't like much of a like a friction like there wasn't much back and forth because that wasn't something that I disagreed on like that is something that I did want but what I find interesting is and I wrote about this in an article um that just got published in a magazine in New York and I was talking about the fact that um, sewing, dressmaking, and textiles was a skill that was used out of necessity for my female ancestors to survive. They used it to kind of create a home with. Um, when money was low, it was easier for them to make the clothes themselves instead of spending on new clothes. Um, and then eventually, when they had to support their family, um, they were able to pick up a job like using the same skill. And for me, I've been able to take that skill that they used to survive and have it as a skill that I use to survive, but in a very different way. So theirs was used in a very traditional sense, whereas I've used it to kind of build this career for myself, um, a career that probably wasn't possible for um, for women of, of my ancestry um, and in my community. So I find it really interesting, the parallels and, and, and how you can we can take these traditional skills and ta- kind of transform them in a millennial way um to to build our careers and to build um aspects of our lives that weren't possible back then for our ancestors but yeah no for sure like um there's always going to be friction between elder generations and kind of like new ways of thinking um and it's because that's all they're used to like i remember when i was younger um we would always have to clean and learn how to cook um and that wasn't something that my brother had to go through um and I, I remember always thinking well how come he doesn't have to do that um so there there was definitely there's always going to be a difference of opinion um between the younger generation and the elder generation but in terms of like the career and seamstressing and and dressmaking and textiles I've always been able to kind of take that with me and build it in something new well you, you know what it is I think it's about in my opinion I think it's really about reimagining and re classifying these rules because as you said already cooking should not I, I ironically something like let's use something as cooking whereby a lot of the cooks professionally actually are men but the the fact is cooking shouldn't be seen 
or certain roles like sewing shouldn't be seen as a subs uh, like a a, a role only specifically for women mm. or something that is lesser than and i think that's where the difference lies i think whereby there were certain roles that were in in a lot of cultures where these are for women and these are for men why is that oh because women are not as strong so you know they can't be responsible for going out and hunting or they can't be responsible for going out and doing handiwork and it's about i think this is where the younger generation are now trying to like break that 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 concept down and say no it both can do either or a man can also stay home and take care of the kids exactly that doesn't make him any less than a man exactly. and so i think this is what's so important for us to just talk about it in this way and say hey no the, the roles can be re reversed they can be switched now i've had friends that again they hold on to some more uh, traditional ways where there as the wife they say no i'm happy that my husband i see him as the head of the household because i like to defer things to him it's easier mm. for me that's mm. okay once both people consent and are exactly are, and, and mutually respect each other and i think right. that's where we need to get to in the dynamic of men and women and then linking it back to our cultures saying maybe that was a time when men had more power or more rights and so women just had to take it on in this way but mm. that's not no longer the case so it's okay for women to 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 be able to play these two roles and it's okay for men to then have to adapt and learn how to fill in between as well mm. because that's one of the things i'm seeing now in a lot of in the caribbean and just in the larger society whereby i think because women have had to play many roles at one time they've adapted more readily whereas they're not it's not as commonplace in my observation as of men where i think men still feel that that their primary role was caretaker, head of the home, mm. you know, they they just, they do it this way. And so now with more women rising to prominence and in head positions, I think men are starting to lose their place and they're not sure how to readapt. And, and right. when I say men, I mean, I feel specifically um, men who identify as cisgendered, uh, straight, as heterosexual, they kind of say, oh, well, what does this mean for me? You know, right, how yeah. where, where, where do I fit into all of this? How, yeah. how do I really feel like this is my way of being a man? And then I guess if we can draw that tangent to the the the, the Indo-Caribbean community and the Sino-Caribbean, they really, person I think in many ways, personify a very more, uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Because I would say on one hand, I would say that there's, a, there's a, like any part of any other community, there's a section where they're very traditional. They're like, no, 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 that's your father. The, you know, the women, they clean, like in Caribbean, yeah just yeah. in general and then even that, you know the women clean and cook and they take care of the men just sit there and they relax and funny is last i mean just to not to break off to uh off topic but on sunday i was making i was with some friends here in barbados and we were making pastels which is a trinidadian uh dish that you usually make a lot during uh during christmas and there were three caribbean women in the kitchen and I was the male, but I'm so I'm the eldest, and I'm I've always been told with my mother, okay, you always you come and help me out. So I'm standing in the kitchen trying to like look for something to do, and they're like, no, 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 you just sit down, you relax. I'm like, no, but I can I can help <laughs> carrots, and I and then in the end, it ended up being me being like, okay, at least let me wash, you know? Yeah. But it's so funny because I feel if we're talking about identity and culture and thinking about Caribbean in one layer and then in Indo-Caribbean and Sino-Caribbean, how much women just have, are just so used to taking on these roles that they're just kind of like, it's fine. This is how it is. Yeah. This is what I'm used to doing. 
I'm just gonna press for it. And it's it's something I think sometimes so ingrained in the yes. way that, yeah. that ingrained in that mindset that we don't even, I think a lot of women don't even realize that. And I think similarly, I think a lot of men don't even realize it because because I'm the eldest, I, I'm used to taking on more prominent roles, but I definitely would say that that's not something that is um, that that is re that resonates with some of my older my other yeah. cousins in other families. Like I said, my brother, yeah, he was the eldest, but um, he never had to take on these roles. But I think it's so ingrained in the elder generation that to challenge it almost seems offensive to them. Um, but it's important to know that no one is against the traditional home as long as it's consensual on both ends and that there is a freedom of choice there. And it should be that mutual respect because the man can say, you know what, I my wife is doing this but that that role that she plays is equally as responsible um equally right. as valuable as my role and similarly the woman can say say that to the man say okay you might not be doing all the cooking and cleaning but i but you i definitely we have a an understanding where you're taking on other roles that i may prefer not to have to do and right. that plays that role and that, and has that value as well yeah. and i think that's where we need to go because i mean when i think about trying to find relationships within this concept the truth is is that we have certain as much as we think we are open mind we say we're open-minded and we say that we, we you know we're trying to balance both i think that's the challenge is it all comes back down so there's still certain things inside of us that are so ingrained that we're like hello like why you know we, we either we either do one of two things either we expect it subconsciously or we rebel, rebel against it subconsciously yeah. and get irritated because of something that stems back from our childhood. And then in growing up in these kind of Caribbean, indoor, Sino-Caribbean, or, or just by extension, Caribbean homes, you know, we, 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 we remember them. We don't yeah. think, sometimes we don't always do it, but it's only when we start to talk. And like you said, where you're, you would be like, hey, why is it that I have to help and clean my brother gets to run around? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, for sure. So to take the conversation back a little, um, in the Caribbean, there tends to be a racial divide. Um, this stems back to colonial times. Um, it was a tactic to keep the races separate in order to prevent them from joining forces and rebelling. Um, this was done through things such as allowing the Indo-Caribbeans to prosper more um, or at least let the Afro-Caribbeans feel like they're prospering more in a way, in a sense of the contrast between being paid a small wage, wage as an Indo-Caribbean person um, to being enslaved as an African person. And this kind of create this hierarchy within the within society. As a result of this, it kind of created this model minority myth of the Asian community kind of wanting to assimilate more to the white community. How do you feel um, this has affected the Sino-Caribbean community in relation to the races around you in the Caribbean? Uh, I think that the approach has always, has has seemed to have sustained, the, the dynamic has seemed to have been the same throughout. I still think that it, they, it, people don't, uh, particularly in Barbados, they don't say it as as loudly. But mm. you'll say, "Oh, you know those cheap Indians," or "Oh, mm. you know those dirty Chinese," you know. Mm. And 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 so, uh, I so, so I think that those you know those 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 tensions and those Im the impacts, the negative impacts 
on within all the communities have really run deep. And I think it's going to take a lot of time and forgiveness and understanding that all of us suffered from, um, from the impact of systemic racism and, uh, and systems that were put in place to divide us, as you said, yeah. or to create these divisions. I think that um, especially given that we, I mean, if, since we're talking about these different stories and narratives in the Caribbean, it's about understanding that at the end of the day, especially in the Caribbean, we are all Caribbean and we mm. all have some, some level of shared, uh, shared history, being mm. here, coming from, having, coming from all over the world to be put placed into this one spot for one reason or another. Mm. And so if we can try to, I guess, have the conversations of saying this is what happened but we can move forward and what can we do with this one but to also look at the commonalities and saying you know though we all are Caribbean we have some shared values we have some shared traditions as well and just learn and be more appreciative that it can we can hopefully come to a better place mm -hmm. but I think that that again the same thing with culture and and, and understanding and cultural awareness that it's only through people I think the best way to place it is having those uncomfortable conversations yes, yeah. together because especially in a day uh, in the in a world of people trying to be politically correct mm -hmm. in a world of people being so frightened to be offend of uh, being offending someone that if you you can I tend to find you can genuinely tell the difference between someone who genuinely might not know yeah and wants to ask a question to make them better versus mm -hmm. someone who is genuinely ignorant and they don't want to know and they don't want to better themselves yeah and it's some and that is that's and that is a principle that's equally being reflected now in the in in the same black lives matter where you know i think there there there's a lot of raw emotion and sentiment that is that has obviously been resulted from years and years of this treatment and this system being put in place and I, the, the converse, the places where I see the most progress are when the different communities can come together and say, mm. hey, you need, you, I, I don't understand where this comes from, or I, I don't understand the extent from where this comes from. Can you, can you talk to me about this? Or can you just share me your story? I really want to know. And mm. vice versa, say, well, maybe, you know, and, and the other side being willing to say, okay, well, this is where we come from, but I also would like to understand why do you feel, you know, so it's again, trying to think about the other person. Right, yeah. Um, and so when I think about racial tension, I mean, you, you like you said to me before, your family comes from Guyana and Guyana definitely has up to present day, such a big divide amongst the right. Indians and black. And that's reminiscent in Trinidad. And then in Barbados, we've had, quite a bit of pushback within the, the the minority white community and the wider black community. So much so mm -hmm. that we've also had one of our um, major stat, one of the statues being taken down because of its representation of, of, of a former colonizer. But you know, what I thought was, what I thought was very, what's the right word? What I thought was very progressive and very good and helpful to the, to the discussion was um, one of the ambassadors said, you know what, we don't, this per, this statue or this symbol was was representative of the wants and the interests and the, the opinion of people, the Caribbean people, Barbadian people in one different time. But mm. this has changed. And now the narrative and the opinion of the current people are feeling different where we want to see a representation of somebody that 
makes us feel more uplifted as maybe a majority black country right, right so i think that i think it's when we can think of it that way and, and again thinking of that fluidity and evolution that we can start to maybe somewhat heal from some of the atrocities that happened and the divisions that mm. were created in the past that's yeah. really where i think that it's still there today yeah i mean with the younger generation there's like less of a divide everyone kind of just rejoices in the fact that we come from the same area and eat the same foods it's more so ingrained in like the elder generation in a sense where they see it through this colonial kind of tunnel vision um i actually know of people who think of the indentured system as something positive and loved when the british were in these countries i'm sure um some positivity came as a distant result but as a whole they see it as a privilege and that they were paid so it's somehow you know not so bad um and i understand like where that comes from but the reality of the situation is that it was called something else but you were brought to the countries for the same reason and sadly weren't respected any more than the people who were there before you and you've been fed a lie uh to keep you apart um and unknowing to your own trauma and i think this is what makes it so hard to kind of unite them because they see it as something that doesn't benefit them that and when that's not the truth they they think it won't that there's nothing to benefit from uniting um but in fact it will actually make you stronger it's interesting that you say that because i would definitely say that the narrative then was also placed on the other side with people who were enslaved or came as slaves mm. where they said yeah look they had it better because they were right. given things you know right. so i and like you i think you hit the nail on the head by saying we need to look at it for what it is it was not, we're not trying to say one we're not trying to discredit or take away from anyone's pain suffering or the mm. level to which they felt that they were un- unfairly treated mm. but but it's all unfair treatment at the end of the day how mm. do we how do we acknowledge this and act, and appreciate and embrace e- each person's story and say okay now now we are in a pos- a little bit of a better position to to have some level of sovereignty and decision to kind of chart our own path and to build our communities in a different way and right. reimagine the way it is how do, what does that and, and i think that's where the energy needs to be focused is having first having those conversations but simultaneously saying how do we want to envision our future to be because yeah. now that was our the past that we have to learn from it but we we are in charge of our own future and taking that ownership because it's something that is very much ingrained into any colo- any colony former colony this mm. sense of dependency this sense of always needing the the mother the motherland or the mm. colonial master and then that and then furthermore identifying these tools or processes that really help to divide us and so you know i think i think you're right we need to we need to really just uh, talk about it but then also start to um imagine where do, where can we go from here mm-hmm. yeah definitely Okay, so this is bringing us kind of towards the end. Um, so I know that when I tell people, especially people that are kind of like from outside of the Caribbean or from the Caribbean, but born and raised in UK, US, Canada, 
um, when I tell them about my identity, I'm Indo-Caribbean, um, they're often quite shocked. So how do people respond to your identity and when you tell them that you're from the Caribbean, but your ancestry is from China? Well, I, I've had it in both. As I said to you before, I've had many different shifts and many right. different perceptions placed upon me. So, you know, growing up in Jamaica, it's common. I was, uh, there's a huge Chinese Jamaican community and we identify as Jamaican. Mm. But then coming to Barbados, that was the first time it was kind of like, oh, you're from the Caribbean or, oh, what are you doing here? Like, I, I don't know. I didn't know there were Chinese, that Chinese here. And I said, no, I'm Caribbean. You know, and they're like, oh, I thought because I work in the I worked in the hospitality industry. So they really thought I was an imported foreigner, whether oh. it be from the States or from I actually used to get like they thought I was from South America, meaning oh. I was one of the, the Asians that were mixed with South American and then came to the Caribbean. So and then I lived in London for a short while, too. And so it was the same thing. They looked at my face yeah. and they're like, OK, well, and, and then also because I'm mixed because my dad is part um mulatto black and white so yeah. they're like okay well he must be a a asian somehow like he's asian but they wouldn't put asian and caribbean together because when people a lot of people that are not as fully aware like you said they mm. think even within the caribbean and then outside of the caribbean still see the caribbean as predominantly a black identity or yeah. an african influenced identity which yeah. is something i'm very passionate about telling these other stories which is but um but then when i went to china I think that is uh, that is part of what helped because of all these experiences. When I went to China, it was a part of my strength where I felt I was being given an opportunity to really showcase and say, no, like I'm I, I am proud of my Chinese ancestry. And look, at we came all the way to the Caribbean and I've come all the way back. Yeah. But that there's this huge other fusion of of, of cultures and traditions and beliefs that form up the Sino-Caribbean community. And that is just, again, one story and one narrative and one group within the Caribbean because there's the Indo-Caribbean and then there's, you know, it's just, it's so that's, it's what I would have previously considered my, something that made me feel insecure or made me feel like the other, especially like I said, when I was in, in Barbados has now come full circle as my, my, my truth, my strength and furthermore, something that I feel like I have a unique opportunity to bridge that gap because as I do a lot of work with the Caribbean and China that I'm able to sh showcase and have Chinese people who identify closer to me because of my how I look and so I can say yeah like my grandparents are Chinese but then also Caribbean people and Barbadians specifically say no but you know you feel you have our essence you have a lot right. of our upbringing so yeah I know I'm in a great uh, I have this great opportunity to be that bridge. So I think, you know, everything happens for a reason. So I'm yeah. just glad that I can reach to this point. Mm -hmm. Actually, there is one more thing I wanted to ask, um, which I didn't put in the questions because it just pops into my head. So in India, there's kind of like this caste system um, and it's known that the indentured laborers came from the untouchable caste. Um, they weren't educated um, typically. Uh, they didn't know how to read or write in English. So for them, going to Guyana to better themselves was like a huge opportunity. Um, do you know if this is kind of like the same narrative um, in your communities? Was it uh, maybe a, a poorer level of people that were coming? Uh, what were the what were the social situations around the your Chinese ancestors that came to the Caribbean? 
So it is, so to answer the question in short, it is clear. We don't have the caste system like India does. India, that is something very distinct and identifiable of Indian culture and, and then transported into the, into the diaspora. Chinese, so we were merchants. The okay. Southern Chinese, why they ended up, why most, um, a lot of the people in the diaspora, the larger Chinese diaspora are Southern is because they were the travelers. They were near to the water. They were the ones that went and wanted to venture out. But you are also very much correct where they're, why, whereby maybe some of them, for example, um, some of them built up industries and were built a place of increased prominence, like the Chinese in Singapore, the Caribbean definitely um, it varies. So in Jamaica, a lot there are a lot of very prominent Jamaican Chinese businesses, and that's because that's happened over time. But in Barbados, for sure, I can say that is that narrative or that understanding of Chinese coming from uh, a pre predominantly lower class or low skill or low skilled profession was something that still resonates up to today, and it's only changing uh, probably say in the last year or two. Mm. And I and I think that that is because again that China is more pub in the public eye and showing that there are Chinese people that are building the way in technology and, and, mm. and, and in business and so forth. But traditionally, most Chinese in general, when they first came to the Caribbean would have started as, you know, working uh, first besides indentured uh, servants, then they when they had the opportunity to work for themselves, they took over the laundromats, the restaurants and, uh, and the shops. So again, not not particularly, not particularly high um, higher class per se. So um, yeah, and I and I think that's it's interesting because when I think about that and I think about how that has impacted even things like some of my family in their perception and ex and exposure to other Chinese and and as a result their concept of 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 being confident in their Chinese nature and maybe I, I I could be misstepping here and if they hear this they probably might be like I don't think it's true but this is my um, perception mm -hmm. when you when you grow up seeing that anybody else who is like you or who is Chinese or Indian and, and, and they not and they and you see them as oh they just have these types of jobs mm -hmm. it def definitely plays it plays a toll on your on your sense of self where you feel like okay I know for sure being in the Caribbean and specifically in Barbados, there was a point where I just, because I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me in Barbados. And secondly, the, the Asian identity was always, um, was pegged as, stereotypically pegged as smart, uh, industrial, hardworking, but never like handsome or, you know, suave or really. So I had a very, there was a period in my 20, the early 20s where I had a very negative perception of my Chinese-ness, mm -hmm. you know, where I said to myself, oh, why would anyone be attracted to me? Or why, why mm -hmm. what my Chinese side, like that, I, I don't, I don't see that as a desirable part. So then I started to want to cling to the other. I, I think I then became a victim of that where I saw, oh, like Caucasian is better or mm -hmm. in, in a certain extent, black was better. So definitely, I think those, those, those parts of our history definitely still resonate, especially in places like Barbados up to today, as to our concept of that identity and, and the where they came from in terms of the social class. Mm, yeah, exactly. And this is why representation, I feel like, is so important because 
It's important that people are able to see themselves in a variety of different roles. And it really does kind of stem from what you're seeing when you're growing up um, in your in your community. So like when you see yourself and you're dreaming of a career in corporate and there's no one that looks like you in corporate, it kind of feels like it's just that much harder for you to get there. There's no blueprint. You're doing it on your own. You're stepping out and you're kind of defying these preconceived cultural boundaries that seem to be there um and i guess it was easier for me because like i said before um sewing and textiles was always in my heritage and my ancestry so for me to make that leap wasn't such a crazy unimaginable thing also in the indo-caribbean people we have a lot of, uh, caribbean community sorry we have a lot of pharmacies doctors lawyers so it, those are the realms that you can see yourself in however i can imagine how difficult it must be trying to step outside of that and not seeing any guidance no representation nothing to look towards for you to kind of better yourself and build up on yeah I, but you know what this is where i also firmly believe that uh, the dias so when i talk about the diaspora now i think about the caribbean diaspora so caribbean people that have moved out or their parents went away to build a better life for their children because we actually have quite a number of very successful caribbean persons in the diaspora i mean uh, we, we, let's use the most current example kamala harris who has mm -hmm. indian and Jamaican descent so when you see those type of representations and 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 furthermore when they make a point to embracing it and saying yeah. it's because of my jamaican upbringing yeah. or my indian upbringing and the, the different small or how that helped to bring the family together or learning how to save or learning you know i think it's when we have these types of representations and these personalities that are willing to tell their story and especially specifically geared towards our community that we can start to reimagine and embrace our embrace our identity and feel more secure in that identity and learn how to build on that yeah and i think that's what makes these platforms so special because it allows people to kind of have the opportunity to to listen in and to hear something that they can genuinely relate to and to not feel alone in their in their experience um because identity can be such a confusing thing um but i always i always always love when i get a message from a young indo-caribbean person or anyone really that has found something that i've written or talked about in terms of identity and said hey that i can relate to that like i thought i was the only one um and that's why like doing like storytelling and, and representation is, is so important um okay so this brings us to the end i think um <laughs> so if you want people to find you or check out your work um where can they do that? Sure. Well, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, at a.christopherlee. And then uh, just stay tuned because I'm because of a lot of the work I've been doing in China, I've just started up my new business on this side called the Cubed Connection. And I'm about to, I'm in the process of building my website. So I'll oh, great. For now, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm on um, I'm on LinkedIn and then on my on my IG, it's Asian Bajan 85. So okay, great. <laughs> which is like Bajan, which is like a colloquial term of Barbadian. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming on. Honestly, it's been an amazing conversation. And thank you so much for having me. I think it's it's great that we can create this platform. And, and as you said, we don't sometimes, even when we think that we can embrace the similarities, but in talking, then you start to see some of the smaller differences as well. That, yeah. But that still help us grow and have us a greater appreciation for each other community, each community. Because yeah, I think exactly. that 
yeah, I think people would lump us in and say, like you said, the Asian Caribbean community, but definitely the Indo-Caribbean and the Sino-Caribbean have similarities, but have some of their own little differences as well. Yeah, and it's like those differences that like, I think we all cherish because it's what makes each community so unique and special and contributes to the Caribbean in such a big way. 